Welcome to Messages and More, a podcast channel of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. This channel plays our weekly sermons and other content relevant to our church community. Well, good morning again. Um, thank you to the choir and the worship team, and a special shout out this morning to the tech team. Uh, we had some issues with the projector this morning, so um, all of you who work behind the scenes, especially, thank you. I don't uh, say that often enough. Um, and I want to say thank you to the rest of you uh, last week with the Teen Challenge Choir here. Thank you for encouraging them and how you lifted them up. Uh, my wife and I were not here. We had the opportunity to go away for a weekend. We went to a marriage retreat and we went to Georgia to skip a snowstorm. Um, so we were really, really glad we did that. But thank you for uplifting uh, Teen Challenge. So, um, but we're, we're, we're back and we're glad to be back. Um, anyway, how many of you, uh, this is a show of hands, audience participation moment here. Um, how many of you uh, are or were fans of the TV show, The Office? Any fans of The Office out there? A few of you? I, I realize it's, it's a little bit older now. That show isn't fresh and new like it was. But um, when it was fresh and new and kind of in its stride, uh, my wife and I were in a stage of life where we had evenings generally stuck at home. Um, we had little kids at the time, and we'd put them to bed, and almost like they scheduled it around our life, the office, a new episode would come out. And so we started making it a habit to spend one evening together. Um, we, we'd keep it free, and, and we'd watch the office, or we'd do something else. But we really got into the show. And, um, and one, of the, one of the themes, one of the ongoing story arcs throughout the series centered around Michael Scott, the manager, and Toby, the head of HR who for reasons that are never fully explained, Michael does not like Toby. In fact, I could go so far as to say he maybe hated Toby. And again, we, we don't really know why. Um, but finally, it happens in the show that Toby announces uh, that he's leaving, and Michael's ecstatic. Finally, his nemesis is gone, <laughs> or going to be gone. And he sets up this opportunity to meet uh, and do an exit interview. And he's, he's, he's ready. He's going to let Toby have it. Uh, he comes up with his list of questions. He comes up with a, a, just a mean gift. Um, and, and he's ready to have this exit interview and just let this guy, just let him have it. And, he, and he, he walks into the room for the exit interview and there sits Toby. And he starts cycling through his cards and he gives him his, his gift. But before he can open it and before he can ask any of the questions, in walks Holly, the new head of HR, to be present for the exit interview. And in walks Pam, the receptionist, to take notes on the exit interview. And Michael Scott finds him in, himself in an awkward, awkward predicament. And all of a sudden, his questioning strategy, he realizes how questionable is his questioning strategy. And so I have, I have a clip. It's really short. But watch this clip and take note of the great question that Michael asks or maybe how it changes when he asks it. All right, well then, I will proceed. I just have some questions that I was going to ask. Um, who do you think you are? Toby. Yeah. Correct. Who do you think you are? 
I mean, how, how significant the tone of the question changes the question, right? I mean, originally he was going to say, who do you think you are? And all of a sudden with other people watching, who, who do you think you are? And, and, and the tone and the circumstances surround the question really shape the question being asked, right? It completely changes it. And so we're gonna be looking in the next, we're, we're starting a series today on Malachi. We're gonna be asking great questions. You may have noticed the giant question marks behind me. We're gonna be asking some questions in the same way that the, that the audience and the people of Malachi were asking some questions. Uh, and and, and the, the challenge for us is to take in the entire context of the question. What is actually being asked is sometimes deeper than the words on the page. Um, and so I'm gonna once again ask you to put yourself in the story. As we read the book of Malachi, put yourself in the story. And that can be really hard to do, especially with the Old Testament prophets. There's a reason that they tend to be less commonly studied individually or, or corporately. Um, and so, and so I've learned over the years that in order to really get into a message, we need to know the story and similar to reading an editorial in the newspaper requires us to be aware of what's going on in the news. We need to know the context of the story. And so forgive me and bear with me this morning. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of kind of go a little bit old Testament 101 professor for a little bit this morning. I'll try and make it less, uh, boring maybe than, than what that sounds like to you. I, I enjoyed Old Testament history personally, but um, I know some of you do not. Uh, but for some of us in our modern translations in the Bible, Malachi is the last book, and, and that's appropriate. Uh, Malachi was probably one of the last, if not the last prophetic book written in the Old Testament. And so I bring that up, not just as random trivia, although it is random trivia, um, but, but more because it's interesting how it wasn't always in that spot. And, and if Jesus, when he was walking the earth, would have, would have had a Bible put together like we have a Bible put together. Now, they didn't. They had them in scrolls. But uh, if he'd had it, it actually wouldn't have been at the very end. It would have been kind of in the middle. Uh, and, and that's because they, they divided their Bible up into a different pattern. Okay? And... Uh, and so at the time of Christ, Malachi would have been listed last among the prophets, but it would have been placed right before the Psalms, Psalms and the other writings, Psalms, Proverbs, etc. And I share this because, well, partly because that's what we're going to do. I mean, spoiler alert, but as soon as we get done with Malachi, we're going to start our summer series, which is Israel's playlist looking at the Psalms. So we're kind of going to follow that pattern. But what I think is significant about that is, is that they rank their books in order of importance. And I put that in quotes because not importance in the sense of these are uh, more authoritative than those, but rather um, in the sense of they started with, with the law. And the Old Testament law is also called the Pentateuch, and it's the first five books of our Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then they went to the prophetic books, and then they went to the writings. And, and they put them in that order of importance, again, more in the sense of how um, specific they were doctrinally, okay? And so they put them in this order. Um, and for me, that is a reminder that we need to take these words seriously, because I think in our day and age, we tend to do the opposite. We tend to put the Psalms and the Proverbs uh, ahead of the prophetic books. We tend to spend more time on them, more energy, put more focus into them. And we need to remember that as important as they are, they are a worshipful response uh, 
And the prophetic books are speaking truth. They're speaking God's word. And, and so we need to just bear in mind that Malachi at the end of the Old Testament um, is still speaking God's word. And it's still speaking God's word in a way that we need to hear it. And I think we limit too often our reading of the Old Testament to the front end, to the Torah. And they would call it the Tanakh, and that's an acronym for Torah. Uh, I knew I'd say this wrong. Torah Nevi'im, which is the, the prophets, and Ketavim, which is the writings, and that's where they'd get the acronym Tanakh. Anyway, that's how they would put them in that order. Sorry, Old Testament professor a little bit there. And so this morning, we're going to start in Malachi 1.1. And here's where it begins. Malachi 1.1, a prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. And so we're going to start here with some basic information. That's going to be kind of where we, we, where we launch in. And we're going to get three significant pieces of information out of that one verse. First of all, uh, we are going to see Malachi, uh, a prophecy. We're going to see that this is, this is a, a word from the Lord. Again, these, these words are authoritative. These words are significant. These words are important. And it is worth going through the effort to understand. Because what is being said is significant. Um, and second, we see its audience. We see it is directed at Israel. And third, we see that it is credited to Malachi. And so let's start there. Let's start with Malachi the man. Let's talk about who Malachi is so we understand. I mean, if I'm going to read anything from the news, I need to understand who is saying it. If I'm going to read anything by anybody, if I'm going to read a book um, around a significant moment in history, it matters who wrote it. If it's somebody who was there and experienced it, or if it's somebody who did their research, or if it's somebody who's, you know, actually writing fiction, that matters. So we need to understand the author to the best of our ability. And Malachi as a person is largely unknown. There you go. Largely unknown. Malachi doesn't give us a lot of biographical information. And sometimes we're used to books like Daniel that give us a lot of biographical information. We know a lot about Daniel the person. We know less about Malachi, but that's not uncommon for prophets. Obadiah only gives us the same amount of information, a name. So we know the name Malachi. And, and what it means is my messenger. And this again ties into the authority of it because the my messenger is not Malachi's messenger. He's saying, he is saying that he is God's messenger. And so whether this name was his birth name, that he was given the name Malachi when he was born, or whether it's like a, a pseudonym that he takes as an author, kind of like John, we talked about this just a couple of weeks ago. John, the beloved disciple, refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved instead of by name. Malachi could have been doing the same kind of thing my messenger. But we see that he sees his words as authoritative from God, that he is not speaking on his own authority. He is saying, thus saith the Lord. And so we see that he sees himself as the messenger. So then maybe the next question we need to ask is, it says to Israel, going kind of in reverse order. Let's talk about the audience. Let's talk about Israel. And so we need to look at both sides of this message, his audience, as well as his purpose. And we'll get to the purpose in a little bit. But let's start with the Israel. Done, right? That's the audience. Israel. Set. Understood. Well, yeah, not as simple as we might think. Because Israel is a complex people, especially at this time. And so 
briefly, I want to summarize the history of Israel. We know, you know, we start in Genesis and we get the creation story. And then we see by the end of Genesis, we're coming into the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph in Exodus. Or Joseph and then Exodus, excuse me. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, the patriarchs. And we see the people of Israel then in Egypt, enslaved. And then we get to Exodus and we see Moses and they come out of Israel. And Moses hands off to Joshua who conquers the promised land. And then there's the time of the judges, and then we get to um, Samuel, the last judge and really the first um, big prophet to unify Israel. And, and Samuel hands off to Saul, who's a king of unified Israel, the king that Israel wanted instead of the king that Israel needed. And after Saul's failure, we see David, and then we see Solomon. And after Solomon's failure, we see Israel split into two the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. And the one thing that I think is significant to note is the Northern Kingdom has not a single good king. They all reject God. And so the Northern Kingdom, which is commonly referred to as Israel in your Old Testament, gets hauled away into captivity by Assyria. And this will come back in Malachi, so this is why I'm going through all this, but as they get hauled away into captivity by the Assyrians, what the Assyrians kind of did is they would take a people and conquer them and they'd haul them over here and they would take somebody else they conquered and bring them and place them in that land. And so Samaria was the capital of Israel and so Samaria was where the Assyrians repopulated some people from outside of Israel into that land. And so they left behind some Israelites and they repopulated with this alternate group and the groups intermarried and intermixed both biologically and theologically. And they mixed the, the, the Jewish worship of Yahweh God with some of their own worship practices. And so Samaria becomes this dynamic, interesting place. Meanwhile, in the Southern Kingdom, in Judah, they have some kings that are good off and on, but mostly bad, and eventually they get hauled off into captivity. They go off to, to Babylon, and that's where we get like Daniel, some of those, and then they come back. Eventually, they get released from captivity and sent back to their country. And they come back into their land, and Nehemiah happens, and they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, regaining some national identity. Ezra happens, they rebuild the temple, rebuilding their spiritual identity. And then we have a time of apathy following. And, and, and I have a, a slide here that kind of gets through some of this timeline of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And you can see there the fall of Jerusalem. That would be that southern kingdom. And then you see the decree of Cyrus where they get sent back, right? And Zerubbabel led 50,000 to Jerusalem. The altar is rebuilt. The temple foundation laid. And also notice other exiles. It's not just the, Israel, not just the people of Judah that return. There's some of these Israelites who were sent off into captivity earlier that return with them, but not all. And so the next slide shows, you know, the book of Esther we see there in yellow. We, we know that story, it's in our Bible. Esther happens after some of this has been rebuilt. And so we see that not everybody came back. Some of them chose to stay where they were. So we have this mix of Israelites and Judahites coming back. And we have some that are still off away and we see this rebuilding and Ezra, leads the second group and does these religious reforms and Nehemiah rebuilds. And then you have Malachi enter the scene. 
And as one commentator put it, thus the community had to deal with several challenges. The reality of restored worship, ordinary existence within a political system in which, in which uh, worship of Yahweh was one of only was only one of numerous colonies rather than the center of the political sphere, and the challenges of understanding its own history and traditions as articulated by the prophets. So we see that when Malachi says to the people of Israel, it's, it's not that simple. It's this group of people who has returned from, from captivity, and it's a mix of people who have been in captivity for different lengths of time, culturally, historically. So let's talk about the purpose, then why? Why did he write this book? And as we already saw, the people had recently returned to Israel, redemption had come, God had brought them back, the temple had been, or at least was being rebuilt. Uh, we see that in Ezra. The walls and their, their national identity had been, or at least were being rebuilt in Nehemiah, but time passes. The initial waves of patriotic and spiritual energy have given way to apathy. They've been back for a time. They have their stuff back. And this, this national and spiritual fervor seems to be fading, seems to be dwindling. As they sit waiting for this promised Messiah, they slide back into, well, here we are, and, and we're God's chosen people. And, and the fact that he's redeemed us and redeemed us and redeemed us means we're safe. Safe to just sit here. Safe to just sit back on, on, and rest on our laurels. And so we have an ethnically muddled group of believers who have lost their passion and are losing their focus on the true worship of God. They have arrived in this land from around the known world, so they've brought together a mix of tradition and ways of life. And they are living next to a people who have commandeered some aspects of the same faith, but have intermixed those beliefs with their own. They have a mix in leadership of those who hold the name of faith but have stopped living it out, and an overseeing authority who pays lip service to their beliefs at times when it's advantageous to them, but seems more interested in their own national affairs. Sound familiar? I think we can relate a lot to the people in Malachi. We can look around at our world and we can see that our church here is made up of a diverse group of people. Some who are bringing in their own traditions that are not necessarily um, unspiritual or spiritual, but part of our history. And we can find ourselves in conflict with each other around that, and yet we can look at our world and we can see that we have leaders who are like Nehemiah seeking to follow God, like Ezra seeking to follow God, but we also have leaders who are paying lip service, trying to gain what they can um, in power. And we can see people who don't even care. And we can see people who have commandeered some aspects of true right worship and intermixed it with their own stuff. And I'm not pointing any fingers or naming any names specifically, but I do think we can sit back and go, maybe reading Malachi can give us some insight into how we should respond as a people today. Maybe the questions that Malachi is asking and the people of Israel are asking through Malachi are more relevant today than we think they are. Another theologian says this, with consummate skill, Malachi fields each of the audience's protestations. How pathetic are these protestations? They reflect an artificial piety and gross misunderstanding of the program and message of God. Nevertheless, 
Malachi will not be sidetracked from his main theme. God loves his people, however hypocritical and insincere they remain. I think that's, I think that's a good reminder for us. God loves his people, however hypocritical and insincere they remain. So now we enter into Malachi with the people of Israel, prepared to hear the same questions and prepared to offer our own pathetic protestations. Yeah, God, but you don't understand what it's like for me today. And like the theologian, we can look at our own protestations and say, how pathetic. How pathetic our own protestations. And so our first question that we're going to look at is, what now? What now? Here we sit, like the people of Israel, in this complex, convoluted context. And we go, okay, God, what now? As we see spiritual apathy, as we see brokenness all around, we ask, what now? But maybe, like Michael Scott, we should change the tone of our question. And instead of it being a challenge to God, okay, God, now what? Maybe it's, God, now what? Help me. And so that is the tone that we need to enter into Malachi with. And we're going to look at Malachi and his mission. And the first thing we are going to hear from God is you are loved. The first message for us and for them is this. We are loved deeply by our God. Malachi 1.1, we've already started, but I'm going to continue. A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, I have loved you says the Lord. Remember where they are in Israel's history. They have time and time and time and time again rejected God. They rejected God in Egypt. They rejected God coming out of Egypt. They rejected God before going into the promised land. They rejected God in the promised land. They rejected God into captivity. They rejected God out of captivity. There's a pattern. I don't know if you can pick up on it. And the same is true of us. How many times could I look through my life and go, I rejected God here. I rejected God there. I rejected God there. There's a pattern. There is very good reason that Malachi starts his book with this assertion. This is the constant. You are loved. So hear that this morning. For us, the reminder is the same. After our repeated rejections of God, after our apathy and ignorance, we are still loved. And this is a message that is not confined to the New Testament. I've heard that before. People go, I like the New Testament because God is a God of love, but the Old Testament, he seems angry. You are loved. Right there. First message in Malachi. You are loved. And we just finished Easter, and we have no better evidence of that love than the message of Easter. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what message of love do you need to hear from the Father today? Remember that our God is a God of love. It is defined by him. Remember that God's love for us is not dependent on our behavior. Maybe you're sitting here uh, feeling like you've rejected God too many times and you are unlovable. You are loved. Or maybe you just need to remember that God's love is eternal. And it is not based on our behavior or on anything we do. But God is a God of love. But so that we do not fall into the same trap as Israel, we need to move on in our passage and remember that love is a God-defined term. Yes, God is a God of love, but God gets to define what love is. 
What is love? The need for this message to Israel is seen in their response. Because God says, I am, I am love. You are loved. And how do they respond? But you ask, how have you loved us? That's their question. Yeah, but God, how have you loved us? And God's response, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. But Esau I have hated, and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. And that's an interesting response. How have you loved us? And then he talks about Edom and Esau, which by the way are the same thing. The Edomites are the children of Esau. So Esau and Edom are interchangeable. But this is the heart of our passage this morning and it is complicated. So the fact that God loves us is not debatable, but what love is and what it looks like is imperative to understand. If we are gonna understand this, we need to understand what love truly is. Because Israel asks their first pathetic protestation and I think it's the same protest that sometimes we lodge. God, you haven't loved me the way I want to be loved. As I look around at my world and I see things that I want to happen my way, you don't do that, so God, how can you say you love me? And he responds, was not Esau Jacob's brother? And again, an interesting response, but Esau and Jacob, not only were they brothers, but they were the, the sons of, grandson of Abraham and son of Isaac, and they were twin brothers. They literally had the same resources at their fingertips. And from day one, they will bicker about it. And so Jacob and Esau are both twin brothers and they're both children under Abraham. So what's the difference? God points first to their relationship with God. They are loved as the children of Jacob. The love they feel is given in contrast to Esau. So instead of arguing how you are loved, he contrasts it. And he says, but Esau I have hated. And we don't like that verse. Most Christians shouldn't like that verse. We don't like the word hate. And especially we don't like the idea of God hating. That's hard for us. But the focus of God's hatred is not on the people of Esau, which is Edom. It is the actions. Again, this is missed by us today, but would have been common knowledge to the audience of Malachi. But Edom turned on their brother. Esau turned on his brother. And multiple times throughout Israel's history, Edom acts not as a brother, but as an aggressor. And that would have been first and foremost in their mind as they read this. Edom and Esau were not the brother of Israel that they should have been. In Amos 9:11, we read this. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not relent. Because he pursued his brother with a sword and slaughtered the women of the land because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked. We see in Ezekiel that Edom, when Israel was conquered by Babylon and hauled off into captivity, they assisted Babylon in the destruction, seeking their own benefit. And so this statement of Esau have I hated is not a statement on eternal salvation. Not saying that Edomites and those of Esau have no redemptive qualities, have no chance for salvation, have permanent residency in my hatred. 
The statement does not counter God's earlier command in Deuteronomy 23.7. Do not despise an Edomite, for the Edomites are related to you. Do not despise an Egyptian because you resided as foreigners in their country. The third generation of children born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. God's plan was always that they would come back. And like Israel continually rejected and rejected and rejected, Esau and Edom continually rejects and rejects and rejects and rejects. And what's the difference? Ultimately, Israel repents. Occasionally, Israel turns back and Edom does not. Instead, their directive is to remember who they are. They are God's chosen method. And I think we could look at the church and make the same comparison. The church is God's chosen method despite its flaws. It's still his chosen method, just like Israel was his chosen people. And Malachi goes on and calls them a people always under the wrath of the Lord. And the final condemnation of them is based on this rejection of God. As long as we as humans think that we get to define what love is, we will always stand under that condemnation. Love is not defined by us and what we want it to look like. It is defined by God. God is a God of love, but we need to respond to his love, not demand that he respond in the way we want. So my challenge to you this morning is, is, is where do you stand? And there, there's, there's a good possibility that some of you in this room have demanded that God respond to love your way. And we need to hear the message of Edom and Israel to say how we respond to the love of God is significant. So how do you respond? Once again, we should be able to easily re relate. We must specifically, must especially as believers in Jesus Christ be hesitant to say, thus saith the Lord. We want God to be how we want him to be. And so oftentimes I think we can pick a verse or a passage or an idea from scripture and ignore everything else it says. It'd be easy for one of them to say, see, Amos says that we, we should reject the Edomites and forget what it says in Deuteronomy, understanding this is a complicated passage. But instead, the message here is don't continually reject God because God is a God of love. And even when that love is hard, we need to respond not like a little kid whose parents told him to eat his vegetables or who take him to the doctor where he gets a shot and go, how have you loved me? But instead to look at God and say, God, I'm gonna trust that your love is good and that you have what's best in mind for me. Which leads us to our last area this morning. To remember that godly love is not limited by human borders. God has always been a God who loves the entire world. God's love was always intended to move beyond the borders of Israel. And this is Israel's reminder as well. Malachi 1.5, you will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. So the call to Edom, the call to Esau is not... Um, that you are rejected by God forever. It's that in repentance, you can come back and the borders of Israel will be enlarged. It will move beyond Israel. And what a glorious picture this paints. God promises that we will see his kingdom reign around the world, but maybe not in the way we want. As one commentator puts it, the history of every culture, 
society, people, nation, community, clan, family, and individual who has ever lived or will ever live leads inevitably to an encounter with the sovereign God. We all will encounter God. The question is, how do we respond? Do we respond by looking at God and saying, how have you loved me? Or do we respond and look at God and say, how have you loved me? What now, God? Where do I go from here? How we respond. And ultimately, our response should lead us into worship. Great is the Lord. Because it is not through our works that God's kingdom borders will expand. It is through his work and his work alone. So that's how we respond. So would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you this morning for Malachi. God, I thank you for the message of Malachi. Lord, help us to respond well. God, help us to look at you and say, what now, God? Where are you moving next? And God, while it might not always make sense to us and while it might not always fit our definition, God, you are the definition. So we trust and we move with you. And we pray this in your name, amen. I'm gonna invite, um, we're gonna kind of transition here. I'm gonna invite Jesse Lothar to come up. Um, Jesse is aspiring to be an elder and um, needs to share his testimony with you as a congregation before we, uh, before we vote. So Jesse, take it away. Tell us all about you. Thank you. Good morning. So I'm up here this morning to share a little bit about me, a little bit about my testimony and what God has done and how he's worked in my life. First of all, my name is Jesse Lothar. I am married to Bethany. We've been married for 11 and a half years. We have two beautiful girls, Lisette, who is eight, Leveta, who is six. My story begins when I was about their age. So I grew up in northern Wisconsin. I went to Sunday school, was confirmed. Uh, there was a, a Lutheran church. They do a, a catechism program. And I must have known the right answers. I passed the test. They said, keep going. You're doing good. But it was head knowledge for me. I did not know the Lord. My heart had not changed. Later in life, after I had accepted Christ, the Lord revealed how important those years were in my life, and more importantly, how important those teachers were in my life. So I just wanted to take a quick second pause and say thank you to our Awana teachers, our Sunday school teachers, and I know firsthand how impactful they can be in our lives. So I just want to say thank you and to encourage them to keep doing what they're doing and give our children the truth of Jesus. So moving on to high school, I didn't have to go to church anymore because I was already confirmed. But God, he still put a pastor in my life. My cross-country and track coach was a local pastor. He was also a really good coach. I was able to get a scholarship to run cross-country and track at the University of Montana. And I went on a visit to the University of Montana, and I fell in love with God's creation. And in that moment, I could feel God was working in my heart, just through his creation. I was in awe. And then my first semester, I meet a friend, a really good friend. And he starts inviting me to church. And I was like, nope, I've already done that. I'm good. 
He kept asking me. I declined every single time. And then he invited me to something called the Strength Team. And it's a ministry that they, they travel around, they share the gospel, and they do these feats of strength. If you've ever seen, first of all, has, has anyone ever been to a strength team, ever heard of it? It's, it's I mean, I owe my life to it. Um, they share the gospel, they bend iron bars across their heads, they rip New York-sized phone books. I think at one point, there's a four-foot thick block of ice that they just run through. All these fun feats of strength. And at the end, they do an altar call. I had no idea what an altar call was. I had never seen one. I didn't know what it was. And then, but right before the altar call, they started praying. And their prayer was so simple. But they were thanking God for the strength that he had given them. For some reason, God used that little phrase to open my eyes, to open my heart. <laughs> and they did an altar call. They asked us if we wanted to go up to the front to confess our sins, to accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and I had to go up. I remember sitting in the very back of the room, and remember, I'm a track star at this point, so I would think I was the very first one at the front, and I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior that day. And my life was forever changed. The next day, I went out and bought a Bible. I've read the, I had read the Bible before, parts of it at least, at this point in my life. It was, it was so different this time. It spoke to me. It was the living word of God. It reminds me of Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrates as far as the division of soul and spirit. And when I read it that day, I felt that. I had been changed. So I jumped in with both feet, got involved in all sorts of ministries. Uh, I think there was three different campus ministries I got involved with. I just tried to learn as much as I could about God and, and who Christ had made me. And as I became more mature in my faith, I was asked to lead different ministries. I got to help uh, start Athletes in Action on our campus, and by the time we had graduated, uh, there was 50 to 100 student athletes coming weekly to this ministry. I was able to lead a group over to Croatia and Germany, sharing our testimonies and sharing our faith with them. And then I got involved in a local church and uh, helped with the adult and career-aged groups. And then that's where I met Bethany, and I was still in Montana at this point. We uh, from there, started dating, moved to Minnesota, got married, and, and I've been here. We have been here with our family for the last decade. And here I've been involved in you know, various groups, uh, small groups, committees. Currently, I am helping run sound in the video tech, and actually Bethany's filling in for me right now because I'm supposed to be back there. So thank you for that, honey. And then most recently, I was part of the pastoral search committee. I'm so grateful for the committee. We had so much fun on the committee. And most importantly, I'm thankful that Bruce is here now because of that committee and the work that we put in. And so here we are today. I've put my name in this hat to be an elder. And this is something that I have thought about and wrestled with for a few years now. 
First of all, I had no idea what the elder board did or what they were. Uh, was I even old enough to be an elder? <laughs> all jokes aside, I realized how important the elder board is to the health and, and future of the church. And I was quickly humbled to be considered in that conversation. So then I had to ask the question, why? Why, why would I do this? And the Lord gave me an analogy that I will share. And uh, with all analogies, just don't dig too deep into it. (laughs) But this is the way that I look at it. And this is my heart, and I hope I can communicate this appropriately. So a good president, good president, they don't seek to be a president for the title They don't seek to be the president to lord it over people, to control people. They want to be the president because they love their country and they love the people. So that's my heart. That I would be able to serve on the elder board out of love for God, love for his church, for this church, and for this community. Thank you. I'm going to pray for Jesse and his family. Father God, I thank you for Jesse. I thank you for him listening um, and hearing your call in this area. God, I just pray a blessing over him and Bethany and Leveda and Lisette. God, bless them as you already have. And we thank you for them and uh, for them being a part of our church body. I pray this in your name. Amen. I think that's all of my announcements. Um, so we will end this morning with a benediction from Romans 15:13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to Messages and More, a ministry of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. To find out more, visit us online at wevfree.org.